Thank you, Debbie, for the reading of the word. So we, uh, we continue our series this summer on gospel identity. George and Deirdre have both preached on, on gender and the issue that comes along with those things of being a man, of being a woman, and the confusion within our culture around gender and what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. For the next couple of weeks, we also want to talk about the confusion and then the biblical teaching around sexuality. What does it mean that a man and a woman become one flesh? Because you don't have to look very far in culture and around us to see that there is a lot of confusion right, when it comes to sex, what its purpose is, what its function is, and how we find our identities oftentimes in sexual expression and the pain and the hurt that's all around us because of various sexual experiences what people thought would give them life ends up bringing death and brings pain and confusion then around sex itself. And, and we bring those things into us, into all relationships. As singles, our view of sex is very shaping for us as we pursue relationships. For those who have, are, are in marriage, our view of sex changes and shapes a lot of the way that we view our spouse, what we pursue. And so we need to kind of understand, we really are standing at a point where the church really has to have a holistic understanding of what the scriptures actually teach when it comes to sex. Today is culture. I want to start with what the culture tends to say. I think there are three kind of dominant views towards sex that are really prevalent in culture. And you can really kind of feel and see a lot of the confusion that these three views kind of tend to hold. Uh, the first view, I'm going to call it sexual realism. I don't know why, but I don't know, you can see. But this is the kind of the public school version of sex, right? Sexual realism kind of goes along the lines of, look, sex and our appetite for sex is natural. It's normal. It's just like any other appetite we have is this appetite that we have to want to have sex. It's like anything else. The only issue with it is we have to be responsible with it, right? Just like you should be responsible with your food. We need to be responsible in our sex lives. Sex is all right. Sex is fine as long as it's safe. Right? That's kind of the dominant worldview that goes along with this. It's being taught. That's really held, right? Like sexual impulses, sexual urges are fine. They're normal. They're good. If you can, go ahead. If you've got somebody who wants to have sex with you, you should go ahead and have sex. Go You're fine having sex as long as it's safe. That's always the kind of only limit is that it's got to be safe sex, which means that you can't have a child or that you can't catch a disease. As long as it's, can, right, it, it's fine. It's realism. It's this idea that, look, it's natural and normal to have sex. Everybody does it. Go ahead. The church needs to stop trying to tell people to not have as much sex as they want. It's a normal function. Just do it in a safe manner. That, that's a really dominant view. I mean, many of you have probably have believed that or do believe that or have been shaped by that view. The, se the second view is kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum. And it's incredibly popular in, in our culture today, really coming out of a lot of religious circles and traditional cultures would argue that sex is okay, but it's more of a necessary evil than anything else. Like our appetite isn't that great. We shouldn't want to have sex that much. And in fact, it's more of a base idea. It's platonic, meaning like this, all these views were prevalent when Paul is writing these passages, when scripture is being written too. 
It's this idea that like the physical body, the appetites are kind of bad. They're not good. Spiritual things are good. Physical things are bad. If you have to have sex, fine. But if you do it, you should probably be a little bit ashamed of it. Don't talk about it. And, and only do it if you're going to have a kid. Like That's the only purpose for it. It's just a necessary evil that we have to have. If you want to have kids, then you can have sex. That's a very traditional view. Uh, the, the function of it is to give you social standing. It's to make you have kids so you can have heirs, so you can build a family, that you can have all those types of things. And a lot of religions you know, teach that, where you will even have, they won't, you know, a husband and wife may not see each other, even in intercourse. They'll, you know, it's just purely for the sake of having a child. Just get it done with as few times as you need to, but that's it. It's something to be ashamed of. Or even if it's something you enjoy, you shouldn't act like you enjoy it, and you shouldn't talk about it as if it's something good and pleasurable, but rather it's something to kind of be kept very hidden. And this has been a very dominant view in Christianity, unfortunately, you know, for the last 2,000 years, coming out of Catholicism and traditional Lutheranism in America and in Minnesota, right? Kind of a, I know my parents had sex because I'm here, but boy, I don't know when or how often because, you know, you just don't talk about sex. You just assume people don't have sex. It's just something not good. It's a very traditional Platonic view. And the third view that's really dominant and that's running into these two views and that's causing a lot of the confusion and pain and heartache in the world is this more romantic view, kind of a romanticism of sex that says sex is a primary way to find fulfillment in life. Right? I was created sexual and I find out who I am through having sex. It fulfills me. It's an expression of who I am. I can't be a human without being sexual. It's essential to who I am. It's a core part of who I am as a person, and it's a critical way for me to be myself, to find myself, is to have sex. I need sex in my life, otherwise I'm not a complete person. I'm not able to fully express myself. I don't have what I need. And what makes sex right or wrong Right, for, for Platonism, right, it's only right if it's for the sake of having children in the confines of marriage. For the realistic, right, it's only right as long as it's safe. Within a romantic view, sex is only right or good as long as there is a tremendous amount of love between the people. Right? As long as you love each other, sex is fine. Sex is permissible as long as there's a great amount of love. If there's, not amount of, if there's no love, then this is wrong. And should be stopped immediately. But if there's love, who's to stand in the way of that? But this is a natural expression of love. It's a natural expression of a relationship. This is just how you express and find fulfillment in relationships is to have sex. If you love someone, you should have sex with them. That's the view. And it's an incredibly dominant one. And so these views are all colliding in our culture. right? And you can kind of see that confusion you can see this kind of realistic view of sex that's been propagated really for the last 30 years in culture, where it's like, it's natural, it's normal, go ahead, just be safe about it, just don't have a kid, just be safe. But it's really unfulfilling. And so you have people having sex at really incredible high numbers and frequency, but when they're surveyed, when the data comes back, they don't want it to be that way. They feel like sex should be more about something else. It shouldn't just be a natural function of the body. 
They want the romantic kind of view of sex too. It should be this something else. This love should be a part of it, this covenant. I want it to mean more than just what it is. But there's great amount of confusion and a struggle and the experiences of it and lives just kind of thrown in the wake of our sexual experiences and culture that we have as a culture. And many of you I mean, know this firsthand from personal experience, the confusion and the hurt of not taking sex seriously, of not being taught what sex is for, what its function is. The church has done a very terrible job of this, kind of a wink and a nod to sex and say, you'll figure it out, just wait till you get married, without ever really teaching it. But the reality is, Scripture is full of teaching on sex. It's everywhere through Scripture. And we as a church really need to rediscover a perspective towards sex that's God-honoring and that really has the gospel as a part of it. Because if we have an idolatry and a misunderstanding of sex, if we let the culture shape our understandings of sex and marriage and relationships... We're going to carry that in with us into any relationship that we have. So we need to understand what does the Bible actually teach when it comes to sex. Now, the primary thing about what the Bible teaches, I think that the best way of describing sex biblically is sex is sacred. That's the term I think we're going to use to describe it. Sex is a sacred act. I mean, it's It's special. It's not just a normal thing. This isn't just a, just a happenstance, something that everybody has. It's a, it's a very sacred thing. It's a special thing. It's revered and it's honored. Scripture really honors sex. It holds sex in very high regard, and rightfully so. Of all world religions, Christianity is the most pro-sex you can find, which is shocking in light of kind of the Puritanism in America and kind of some of our ideas towards that, what Christianity's believe about sex. But it's the most dominant, the, most, the religion that gives the most positive view of sex. So we have to kind of wrestle with the questions of why. Why is Christianity so pro-sex and so in favor of sex? The first reason that we see biblically of why sex is so sacred is in the act of procreation. It's really an amazing idea. If you think of if you look at it from Genesis on, right, and this is really the primary teaching about sex from Genesis to the Old Testament, when a man and a woman, when a husband and a wife engage in sex, they join God in co-creating a soul, of building the kingdom, of being fruitful and multiplying, of filling the earth. This is the being made in the image of God, was that they would fill the earth, that they would have dominion over it. And in this act of sex, They join with God and his plans and his purposes for this world of creating. And where you really see in the Old Testament the significance of sex as a community function, as a political function, really, of the ramifications of it, the need for children and the need for generations of children to build up security and strength as a nation. How is Israel going to take the land? How is Israel going to be who they are? Through marriage, through sex, through having children, through this work that God has been doing through them, and ultimately, through this ultimate hope of salvation. I think George mentioned this uh, last week when he talked about being a man, the hope of future generations and the looking for future generations, securing future generations as a man. And that's really what Scripture teaches, and that hope of every generation hoping that this will be the generation that would produce that promised child, the one who would free us, the one who will deliver us, the one who will save us. 
And sex has that function of ultimately bringing forth the salvation of the people. Sex is a very sacred act of joining with God in the creation of life. I mean, for those of you who are married and who have children, I mean, you get it. I mean, when you think about that, it's, an, it's unbelievable what that produced. It's unbelievable that God would do this, that God would work this way through a man and a woman to create life, to propagate the kingdom, to build the kingdom. Just look at the growth of the church through childbirth. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably been our primary means of growth over the last three years of the church. There's been babies being born. And, and, and that's good. That's part of God's plan is for babies to be born, for life to come into this world, for more life, for more culture, for more and more of the kingdom to go forth. I mean, that's a noble endeavor. It's a godly endeavor for a husband and a wife to have sex and to produce children. It's a beautiful thing. And that's really what's spoken against in the Old Testament. When you see someone... Speaking against a sexual expression in the Old Testament, it's usually because it didn't produce a child. It wouldn't have produced a child. It was wasteful. It didn't understand. They didn't understand what God had intended for sex and with that aspect of needing children. Now, that is such a contrary understanding and picture than the realistic vision that's given today, right? That's so common where what's taught in culture, right, is good sex is safe sex. Right? Safe sex is sex that can't produce a child. Ooh, to the author of right, the Pentateuch or something, like, what are you talking about? How is that safe sex that that can't produce a child? The, the whole point was to produce a child. Why would you be separating? But in culture today, we've really separated both aspects away from one another. Having a child and sex itself are very separate entities. But procreation was an essential part of what sex was designed for. It was designed to have children. But it's not the only aspect. It's not the only aspect to sex that's taught in Scripture. The second thing that we see within Scripture that makes sex so sacred and such a unique, revered uh, aspect of who we are as people is also in its pleasure. Right? There's an aspect in which we create children through this act, there's an aspect in which we join in God in the creation of souls, which is a powerful, wonderful thing. But Scripture also teaches that sex is incredibly pleasurable. And that the pleasure that comes along with sex is analogous to really the love and the self-giving that exists within God himself. That there is a joyous self-giving and receiving of pleasure that's in sex. Scripture is incredibly bold and frankly shocking when it comes to this. If you read the wisdom literature in particular, if you look at Proverbs and especially Song of Songs, it, it's shockingly just in your face with the pleasures and the joy of sex. That sex is good and it was created for us to enjoy it. Christianity celebrates the pleasure of sex, which completely undermines that platonic view that this is just a necessary evil. It's just for the purpose of having children. Well, that's not true if I'm going to be faithful to Scripture. There's an aspect in which, yes, sex does produce children, and that is so good and part of God's plan, but it doesn't always produce children, as many of us know who have struggled having children. It, it doesn't always do that. 
But God, in his graciousness, also designed sex as a way in which we experience a tremendous amount of pleasure. That there's an intention that we would experience pleasure in sex that would mirror the pleasures that we experience from God, that mirrors the experience of pleasure that God receives as the self-giving love and pleasure within the Trinity. We have this with someone, right? Like the union, total union with someone, that one flesh, man and woman becoming one, one flesh to experience joy and pleasure in giving of oneself to the other. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the love and the self-giving of God that he gives as well. There is an ecstasy and satisfaction in sex that we were intended to experience and that we're not to be ashamed of. We're not to run from, but rather we're to actually pursue. The pursuit of pleasure in sex is not wrong. It doesn't mean that you are less spiritual. It doesn't make sex dirty. It was intended to be pleasurable. And the pursuit of pleasure in sex is part of God's intention to it. Whether or not it produces a child, it's pleasurable. There is a deep satisfaction in giving and receiving pleasure in sex that we were intended to receive, that we were intended to experience. Sex is not just a necessary evil for the production of children. Rather, it's something to be done just for the pleasure of doing it. This is Song of Songs. This is all the way through the wisdom literature. It's the pursuit of the pleasure and the enjoyment in sex is not wrong. Now, next week, we're going to talk about what sexual immorality actually is. So we'll talk about how this can go wrong very quickly. But the pursuit of pleasure in sex is not sin. It's not wrong. We were intended to find pleasure in it. Now, the third aspect of sex that we see scripturally, beyond just that it is a way in which we join in God's work of creation and that we experience tremendous amounts of pleasure and joy that mirror the pleasures and joy that are in God, the third aspect to sex that we see scripturally is that sex is a sacred act because it constitutes a covenant renewal ceremony. If that kind of makes sense, it's kind of technical language. Marriage is a covenant. You understand this, I hope. Marriage is this covenant. It's a place that creates a place of security, of vulnerability, right? To be in that marriage, to be in this covenant. I am with you. You are mine. The Song of Songs that was read today, my beloved, I am his and he is mine. 1 Corinthians 7, right? I don't own my body. My wife owns my body. She doesn't own her body. It's this, I mean, there is a covenant here. (laughs) There is safety in that covenant, right? Like, I don't own me. We don't own ourselves. We are bonded together and within this parameter of a covenant that can't be made. There is a oneness. We were made for each other. And in marriage and in sex, there is a oneness that just can't be obtained anywhere else in the world. Right? It just can't in culture. People are desperate for this oneness, for that union to fully be safe and secure with someone else. This is my partner. This is the person I am most safe with. This is the person that I am with, and they love me and I love them. Everyone wants this, and it's designed to be obtained in marriage and in sex to become one flesh, complete union. And this is why sex and marriage are completely inseparable. You have to have the covenant. Without the covenant of marriage, sex becomes a work. It becomes a way of keeping someone, a way of enticing someone, a way of 
expressing yourself, but a, a way of keeping someone happy, but there's always fear involved. There's always the need to perform involved. There's always, it's not safe. There's no safety to it. No matter how much, no many precautions you've had that you're not going to get an STD or have a child, it's not safe because there's no covenant around it that really truly makes it genuinely safe. The covenant is necessary for sex, but sex is also necessary for the covenant. Right? And that's really what God has intended for sex within marriage. The marriage covenant is, in, is essential to have sex. You need to be married for it to be safe, for it to be what God has intended, to be the fullness of this one flesh. But without sex, the covenant grows stale unless we continually reenact our covenant, which is what sex is. It's this reenactment. It's this renewal. It's a covenant renewal ceremony for marriage, a physical reenactment of the inseparable oneness in all areas of life between a man and a woman, economic, legal, personal, psychological. It was created that way. Sex renews and revitalizes marriage. It's an act that re... It, it, so it, it has all these aspects to it. Sex, it's, it's the opposite, really, of this romantic view of sex that's really popular today that says sex is a way to express yourself. Sex is a way to find fulfillment. No, Scripture teaches the opposite and says, no, sex is a way to give yourself. Sex is how you give yourself to your spouse. Sex is how you offer yourself and how you reenact your covenant agreement to be faithful to someone else. There's a mutual owning of each other, like in 1 Corinthians 7, and a giving of ourselves away. This is why sex outside of marriage, according to Scripture, and why Christians over the years have been so adamant against it, this is why it's such a monstrous thing. Because culture promises that if you indulge in sexual ap your sexual appetite, whatever it is, like this is a natural impulse, go ahead. You want to look at porn, look at porn. Just be responsible. Just don't do it too much. If you want to have sex outside of marriage, go for it. Just don't do it too much. Be safe. Be normal. Or that romantic view, as long as you love each other, as long as there's a great amount of love, go for it. And what it promises, the culture promises that you will get fulfillment from it. It will fill you. It'll feel good. You will find out who you are. You will become more of who you are. But it's a lie. It's an empty promise. Rather than being filled up, sex is an act of giving ourselves away. And we give, and we're giving, and we give part of ourselves, all of ourselves. It's separating the act from the covenant, it, you exchange the fullness of sex that God has intended within marriage for a cheap inversion that just takes from you. And the consequences of that are really dire. If you, you know, there's a lot of interesting studies out there. The, the Christian world is not the only world that thinks that there's a problem with our culture, especially with pornography, even in the Philip Zambroda, he's a very famous psychologist from the 70s, and he did the Stanford Prison Experiment, if you know that one, that was his kind of famous one that he did. But he, he's looked at a lot of just how pornography is rewiring men's brains into ways that they just can't relate to women any longer. They can't think normal. They, it, and it is. And for those of you coming out of treatment, like our, our minds get rewired by what we're addicted to. It is hard to change our habits and our thinking 
and our mind becomes held captive to these things. And with sex, it's such a powerful drug that it can really wreak havoc, generational havoc, throughout marriages. We bring it into our relationships, and it affects the community it brought. This is why the New Testament takes sexual immorality so seriously. And Paul, again and again, we'll talk about this next week, deals with sexual immorality, saying, like, you've got to deal with this in your church. You cannot allow sexual immorality to be rampant because it is so insidious, and it spreads, and it really has a damaging effect. The Bible views sex not primarily as a way of self-fulfillment, but as a way to know Christ, as a way to build his kingdom. That view really undercuts the traditional society's idolatry of sex that says sex is really for social standing and security. It undercuts secular society's idolatry of sex for personal fulfillment. Scripture really teaches that sex is not about you at all. Sex is for God. Sex is a way that we experience Him. It's a way that we come into contact with God on a very sacred level within this covenant of marriage that He's intended. And there's an incredible need for the church today to recapture a beautiful and holistic picture of sex. The world needs, the church needs, right? A community that understands, imagines, practices, and teaches sex according to God's intended purposes. Sex is a sacred way to experience Christ and to build his kingdom through procreation, pleasure, and covenantal giving. But that doesn't turn it into an idol. Because that's our problem. Our greatest issue, right, is that we take these good gifts of God and we turn them into ultimate things. And that's what we see happening within our culture, within the church, within our own hearts. Right, if you're honest with yourself, you've made sex an idol in your life. We all do it. It's such a good gift. It's such a special gift. It's a sacred gift that God has given. And we turn it into an ultimate gift. We turn it into a thing that we think will give us life, a thing that we think will give us meaning, something that will make us whole, make us satisfied, or give us power over someone. We, we turn these good gifts into idols. So what can we do? Well, I think the thrust for us or the instruction for the church is kind of twofold. And I think you see this from Scripture, especially out of the New Testament. I think the first thing for us as a church in this culture and in our day that we live is we need to have a high view of marriage and sex. We need a higher view of it. We need to hold sex and marriage in much more reverent view. We need to celebrate it. We need to celebrate sex. We need to celebrate marriage. We need to teach it and we need to practice it. If you are married, you need to practice sex joyously. You need to not run from it. You need to not hide it. Well, you should, I mean, not, that didn't come out quite right. But you shouldn't be ashamed of your sex. Sex is a, this is exactly what God has created you for. This is something you need to regularly participate in and give one another, give yourself to one another. This, this is a good thing. As a church, we need to hold marriage in very high esteem as a good thing, as a great thing, as something that God has intended. But at the same point, and this is what's so amazing about Christianity, we need to hold singleness and celibacy in very high regard as well, as a great thing, as not a lesser thing. Because really when you look at the New Testament, we need to recognize, 
I mean, we're so influenced by culture that we don't even realize it. I mean, it's so easy to, rec- to look around and make sex such an ultimate thing, marriage such an ultimate thing, that that colors the way that we view everything. And if someone is single, if somebody is divorced, if someone has been abandoned, right? The kind of like Paul was giving there, the widow, the single. It's really easy to look at them with pity and be like, oh, poor singles. They don't get to have sex. No, that's not it at all. We have to hold singleness and celibacy in incredibly high regard. Jesus does. Jesus was celibate. Paul was. Paul did. The New Testament church holds both in incredibly high standing. I wish that all could be like me, single. There's an aspect in which we need to not elevate sex to, the, to such a degree that we look at anything other than sex as lesser and unfortunate. And boy, I just, I don't know, boy, I'm so sorry that you have to be single. I wish you could get married. No, that's, that just isn't the case. Marrieds and singles, we need both in the church. According to the New Testament, right, we don't choose the married life or the singled life based off of what will be more fulfilling, right? We'll be married, we'll, we'll be mar- if I marry and have children, will that give me the good life? <laughs> or single life, oh, maybe being single will be the good life. If I stay single, then I'll be happy and I don't have to deal with all these things. This will be great. Christianity's like, no, that's not the decision. You choose single or married based off of which is better for the kingdom. Which has God equipped me for? Where am I in my life? Am I single? Be single. Be faithful. Be celibate. Worship Christ in your singleness. You may not always be single, but if you're single, be single. That's what Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians were. If your spouse left you, be celibate. This is okay. This is a good position to be in. It's a powerful position to be in. It's not a lesser position to be in the church. If you're married, you also need to be faithful. You also need to be celibate at times. There's going to be seasons in life in which you cannot have sex and when you shouldn't have sex. And you need to practice that as well. Faithfulness needs to be the dominant characteristics of married and single, not just the single people. And married people just get to do whatever they want and engage in anything. No, that's it's not it. If you have that idolatry, you'll bring that with you right into your marriages. A high view of marriage should equate a high view of singleness. If you look at Ephesians 5, that very lofty view of marriage, it provides actually a great amount of support for the goodness of being single. Because Ephesians 5 in Scripture again and again tells us that marriage is not ultimately about sex. Marriage is not ultimately about social standing, personal fulfillment. Rather, marriage was created to be a human reflection of the ultimate love relationship with the Lord. That's what it was created for. And if that's true, this exalted view of marriage then shows us that marriage is only penultimate. It's not the ultimate thing. Right? And we got to be reminded of this. Right? Marriage is not the ultimate good that you're going to experience in life. Sex with your wife, sex with your husband is not your ultimate good. That's not your ultimate pleasure. That's not it. That's not the high point. It's a second one. There's something even higher. And if that's true, it points that true marriage, there's a true marriage that our souls needs and that true family our hearts wants. No marriage can ultimately give us what we most desire and truly need. According to Ephesians 5, even Christians married to Christians right, are going to do a terrible job of conducting their marriage 
if they lack a loving relationship with Christ. If we don't have that, married people will put too much pressure on their marriages to fulfill them. And that will always create idolatry and sin and hurt within our relationships. And similarly, if singles don't have that same fulfilling love of Christ and Jesus in their life, they'll put too much pressure on that dream of marriage, on that dream of finding that person, that it'll create an idolatry and sin, and they will suffocate that person when they get into a relationship. Singles must realize that the very same idolatry of marriage that's distorting their single life would and will distort their married life. If you're single, that's good. Praise God that you're single. Experience the love of Christ and satisfaction in the joys that he has to offer you and grow in that. Practice faithfulness and celibacy. It's a good thing. And you will carry that with you through the rest of your life and maybe one day into marriage, and that'll be good. If you are married, you need to practice sex within God's parameters of what he's intended it for. You need to celebrate it, but you need to recognize it as not an ultimate thing, as something that's secondary. And then how, so how do we hold these two things in tension? How can I elevate marriage and elevate singleness? Like we were just mentioning, the only way that we can do this is to be filled up with the spousal love of Jesus, marrieds and singles. Because in Christ, we've been filled with love. All of our fears have been removed. We have the fulfillment. We have pleasure. We have a covenantal relationship. We have this family that we've been longing for. We have it. Everyone has it. We have access to this, this covenantal relationship that we all have been looking for, that satisfaction that we somewhat get from our spouse in this life, we have access to through Christ. Because Jesus left his family, because Jesus left his intimacy with the Father and gave himself freely for us, we have nothing that can ever be taken away from us. We now have everything given to us. We lack nothing. This world will tell you that you're lacking. But that's what the narratives, all three worldview narratives show you. Like you're missing out. You're lacking. If you're not having great sex, you're missing out. If you're not having sex, you're missing out. If you're married and you're not having great sex, you're missing out. If you're not this, you're not, it, it, this picture of sex will bring you fulfillment. It doesn't. Nowhere in scripture does God promise that sex will bring you fulfillment. It's pleasurable, but not in receiving fulfillment, but in the giving of oneself within that covenantal relationship and ultimately giving yourself to God. The culture and that cultural narrative only leads to despair. Christ calls us back to himself and says, look, I am your groom. Scripture is full of this. The New Testament continually reminds us of this, that our marriages and our relationships here only point to and represent the ultimate marriage that awaits us all. We all have a groom. We all have a marriage waiting for us. We all have pleasures waiting for us forevermore in heaven. Pleasures and love that will have no end, that will be so much greater than we could imagine now, that will eclipse the physical pleasures of sex on this earth, which is unimaginable. C.S. Lewis, in his book Miracles, gives a little picture of this, trying to explain, here you're like trying to explain how pleasurable sex is to a child, and the child being like, I don't know why you would do that, first of all, but, you know, but he was giving it, and then, and then the, the child being like, oh, did it, is it better than eating chocolate? It can't be better than having chocolate. You know, it, 
and it, it is amazing, right? Like our, our vision of pleasure grows. And you just can't imagine anything more pleasurable than what you're experiencing in this moment or this life. There's nothing better than this. This is it. No, we were created to increasingly experience pleasures and joys. And the pleasures and joys that await us, are, it, it's unfathomable. The pleasure and the joy that awaits us on that day, on that wedding night with the Lamb in our heavenly homes, this, this feeling, this, the culture tells you, right, if you don't have a spouse, if you don't have the right spouse, if you don't have a sex life, if you don't have the right sex life, you're missing out. It's not true. No one's missing out. Fulfillment awaits us when Christ returns. Our identities don't come from sex, whether we're married or we're single. We have to stop being so easily satisfied by the pleasures of this world and stop holding so fast to them. The marriage feast awaits. Pleasures and joy await us with Christ. We have to look forward to that day. We have to hold, so we have to hold marriage and sex in very high regard and sacred, but we have to remember what it points to and not view it as an ultimate thing. There goes my stand. But we have to hold marriage in very high regard, but we also have to hold celibacy and singleness in high regard. And the only way we can do that is by actually believing that our fulfillment and hope comes from Jesus and not from our sexual experiences. Let me pray.